Hello and welcome to another episode of our show. Back after a, a bit of a hiatus, as most of you know, I'm a school teacher, so I'm off for the month of July and August. And during that time, I've developed our YouTube channel. I'm probably wrong about everything. So if you haven't yet, please check it out and subscribe. Help us grow. Uh, today's episode is with Dr. Claudia Gold. Dr. Gold is an author and child psychologist, and she's talking to us today about her work as well as the, the work of Elizabeth Young Brule, Childism, which is the, the prejudice against children, why that is, where it comes from, uh, perhaps it's, it's societal influences on, on why we can be um, prejudiced towards children. One thing I've heard from people is sometimes they say things like, oh, I can't stand kids. And that always just baffles me. It's like, what is it about kids that you don't like? I mean, really, we're all just extensions of our childhood selves. And, you know, a statement like that provides me with more questions than answers, as most absolute statements tend to do. Anyways, please check out this episode. Uh, if you like it, please be sure to send us an email. My email is robsprobablywrong at gmail.com. I get back to you within a day or so. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening. Enjoy. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind. And you're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. Hello and welcome to another episode of our show. We have with us today, Dr. Claudia Gold. Claudia is a pediatrician, infant parent, mental health specialist, author, teacher, speaker. Uh, she's the author of books, The Development of Sci Developmental Science of Early Childhood, The Silenced Child, Keeping Your Child in Mind, and The Power of Discord. Um, just wonderful work. That, that you've been doing. I was doing a little bit of research. You've also started this Hello, It's Me project, which is really seems to be attachment-focused uh, with parents and, and their, their infant children and getting them used to their role because for a lot of us, I mean, there's so many um, aphorisms about parenting, like children don't come with instruction manuals and all of, all of these sayings. And really, you can read as many books as you like, but when you meet your child for the first time, it's awe-inspiring, but it's it's also terrifying. I remember when I met my daughter for the first time, Sophia, I was like, oh my goodness, this is this is my duty. This is my responsibility and my privilege. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for being here. Um, what actually originally brought me to you, Claudia, was the writings of uh, Elizabeth Young Brule. Mm -hmm. who wrote the book Childism. Uh, I wrote this book when I took a philosophy of children course many years ago, and I was one of the only other males in the room, which was quite intimidating. Yeah. Uh, and, and I wish it weren't that way, to be honest. You know, but, yeah. You know, tis his life. Anyways, what can you tell us about childism? Okay, so um, Elizabeth Young Brule, uh was a historian, psychoanalyst, a brilliant woman who sadly died suddenly uh, of a pulmonary embolism right before the book came out. So 
it kind of robbed the world of the opportunity to discuss her ideas. Um, so it was, it's uh, prejudice against children. Um, and she sees it as uh, rooted in this idea that children are, that people see children as needing to be controlled rather than understood. And she, a lot of the book is actually about the history of the child protection um, uh, concept in the United States. So uh, I also do a lot of work uh, with families with substance use. So I have a lot of interface with child protection. And when it was originally set up, it was, it was as she describes, it was thought to be a child saving organization or, or institution rather than a, a family promoting. So it would be very much punitive of parents. So that was this kind of approach of child, in order to protect a child, you had to protect them from their terrible parents. Mm -hmm. And so that it, childism is rooted in that as well. So instead, the way she, you know, we what we would do better in supporting children is to think about parents as really always meaning to do their best for their child. So rather than protecting children by punishing their parents would be to have a society that supports healthy parent-child rela relationships by supporting parents. Um, and how sort of paradoxically, we do exactly the opposite of that in our country in, in, in terms of uh, government-sponsored support of families. Um, so people who, you know, this gets to be a little bit political, but people who sort of promote themselves as pro-family um, are actually, you know, m most uh, in the name of freedom, depriving uh, families of the kind of support that they need in order to really listen to their children and support healthy development. In, in contrast to other countries that have very extensive uh, support networks for children and parents. That's a very long answer, but I hope I got it all in. <laughs> no, that, I mean, that was awesome. As a, uh, I myself am a child counselor, uh, an elementary school counselor. And I am, it's an amazing privilege because my job is to listen to children, to mm -hmm. listen to young people. And the things that they tell me are, I mean, the whole gamut of emotions. Um, mm -hmm. But I think there is this idea of what, what a child is, and then there's the reality. Mm -hmm. And I think what we, we wrestle with is that our ideals of what a child is are just so far from what it really means to be the experience of what it is as a child in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what is it, what is it that we, we wrestle with? What are the ideals of the child and what are the realities that, that you're seeing? In your work? Well, I think I, I just wrote a piece about uh, the importance of uh, shared intentionality in our uh, being human. So kids come into the world, they already have, you know, as you know, have, being a dad, a, a, a baby comes into the world, they're already so much of a person, their own little person, their own little unique person. Um, and they have so much capacity to communicate that, um, whether it's that they like to snuggle or they prefer to kind of see the world on their own terms or whether they 
feel very calm in a in a in a room that has a lot going on or whether they get easily overwhelmed and disorganized they can communicate that about themselves and when parents have a, what one of my big influences, uh, Winnicott's, called a holding environment, when there's an, a culture that supports parents so the parents can really be there to listen to their child's communications right from the beginning, um, then they, they have kind of a natural intuition and there's this kind of give and take where, where the parent and the child get to know each other in a very natural way. But if you have, you know, a world where there's... A, a, an expectation of immediate return to to um, pre-pregnancy functioning, where parents are often alone and and partners need to go back to work right away, um, or worse, you know that they're alone uh, in, in a pandemic trying to uh, work and take care of their children, or experiencing you know incredible stress, uh, substance use, domestic violence. If, if other things are going on that really pull the parent away from that ability to be fully present with their child, then right from the start, this kind of natural, what we, what I call in my most recent book, mismatch and repair gets off track and, and it kind of can um, derail development. So, so we really need, if we really want to support children, we need to support parents from the very beginning to be able to be present with their child. Um, in the way that they need. How are we failing to support parents? <laughs> well, in some very basic ways, uh, mm-hmm. which is that we is paid parental leave. Like we are one of the only developed countries that that has no uh, system of paid parental leave, and even uh, or minimal paid parental leave. Um, so that's one thing that. Um, really needs uh, uh, attention. Um, uh, Childcare is another thing, you know, that if we want, uh, if, if both parents want to work, uh, uh, investing in quality uh, childcare, affordable childcare um, is really critical. Um, but then, you know, so those are sort of broad government policy, but then there are things like you know, in some communities around the world, there's an expectation that the community feeds the parent, the mother. There's an expectation. I mean, I think fathers are so neglected, you know, it, that there's an expectation that's, that the father goes immediately back to work. You know, some places there is uh, some paternity leave. I don't know if you were able to have that, but it's certainly not the typical expectation. So, um we don't really have a culture of postpartum care that recognizes the need for parents to be there to just take care of their child, you know, to have somebody who brings them food or does the cooking or, you know, really takes care of the, the, the mother um, and the father. Uh, um, um, we, we don't have that kind of an expectation in our culture. And and is that that's sort of a product of the industrialized sort of working? Uh, yeah, and and I mean some countries do a lot better at it. You know, uh, I was I have a colleague who is from um, you know I work with a lot of people who are from Australia or uh, in Great Britain where they have health visitors. So at least that there's an expectation that somebody comes into the home 
every person. So there's no stigma ah. and, and comes in regularly to see how the mom is doing to weigh the baby. Uh, we don't have anything like that here. So there are other societies that are industrialized who do a better job than, right. than we do. But then there are also, you know, non-Western communities where like, you know, in communities in Africa where like many different people within the family all raise the babies, you know, and it's, it's really a, a much stronger community support than what we have uh, in, in Western culture. And, and I mean, many people may say, well, what's coming to my mind is that there's, there's individualistic cultures and there's collectivist cultures. Yeah. And perhaps that's, this right. is a struggle that we have in our individualistic culture is that yes. Yes. you don't have the supports that we need. Right. Um, which actually kind of brings to mind how a teacher, um, one of the, the most brilliant teachers that I've ever known uh, Christy Svensson, she was, she's teaching grade two during the pandemic. And while many of us have just been absolutely exhausted, she said that it was one of the best years that she, she said it was the best year she ever had as a teacher because of how close she uh, became with her students. Really? Thought, wow. Like that is such an encouraging thing to That's hear. That's amazing. Yeah. She's an amazing teacher. Like. How did she brilliant. do it? <laughs> I, I think that there was a mentality of that we're all in this together. Uh-huh. And and it's it's through that the the roots of attachment. She really embraced that model of, uh-huh. you know, we are a unit, we're gonna figure this out. And the the kids, the students, they became more resilient. Um, and she's she's always been someone who's at their level. And I think that that's a really good model for, for teaching, for parenting that again, parallels uh, what, what young rule was saying with childism is that we were all once children, but yet we forget, like I've met people who they're like, I don't like children. And I'm like, what, how could you not like children? They're like, I mean, this is a, this is my own bias. Of course, they're the greatest thing there is, right? We learn so much about ourselves from being around children. Yeah. Right. And so what, uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, and, and when you really listen carefully, even as I said, starting from birth, but you know, toddlers, you know, they have a tremendous ability to communicate what's going on for them. Mm-hmm. You know, you just, if you're, if you're paying attention and you kind of know what, what to look for, I, I, in my practice, I should say where I tend to see people who are struggling, um, yeah. It never ceases to amaze me where if we just kind of, I, you know, we don't get into what to do or how to solve the problem, but we just play around and it's messy. And that's what I wonder about your teacher, whether she let it be kind of messy. And, and then we get to what is really going on. And, and the child inevitably is able to tell you what's going on, either even if it's not in language, it's in their, their play or their behavior. Um, so, uh, yeah, there, I, I agree with you. Obviously we're, we're like-minded in that way that we think children are quite extraordinary. Um, I wonder about your teacher friend also, you know, facing it, like this is a problem and we've got to mm-hmm. figure this out together. You know, that there was this kind of collaboration, it sounds like between her and her students, as opposed to kind of trying to smooth it over and, and make it be like normal school. <laughs> um, uh, and, and I think that's a, that's a major message of our most recent book, The Power of Discord, that 
when you acknowledge that things are really difficult and messy and kind of go through it rather than smooth it over, you can have what she, what it sounds like she had these tremendous growth in relationships. Like we got through this together and look, look where we are now. And that's exactly where, like you said, resilience comes from. Well, I, I think too, that, um, I could be a bit of a philosopher and the name of the show is I'm probably wrong about everything. So correct me at any point. I won't. <laughs> I will. You know, yeah. There's, there, there's no hill uh, too high. I won't die or, you know, I'm not afraid to die on the hill. Um, but uh, people have talked about white supremacist culture and there's this idea of perfectionism in it. And I think that myself as a parent and, and being in this world and, and uh, living in it the way that I have is that one thing I have wrestled with is perfectionism. And I think that that's one thing that I'm seeing in parents is that there's this idea that we have to get it all right, that we have to know it all. Oh, yeah. But we don't know it all. And the more that we can say, like, hey, I am really not sure about this, yeah. um, well, kids absolutely. learn from that. No, I think uh, I'll, I'll answer. There's there's a lot in that question. So let me speak to the perfectionist <laughs> part of it, which I'm more comfortable with. Um, yeah, I think certainly there is an expectation of uh, perfection that goes along with a lot of aspects of our world and certainly with parenting. And one of the major themes in our my most recent book, actually in all of my writing, is this idea of the good enough mother. And what that really means is the not that it's okay if you make mistakes but that you need to make mistakes because mm -hmm. like taking for example your your colleague and her class i'm sure you know everybody was kind of fumbling around for a while because it's such a strange environment and there are going to be mistakes and we're going to you know not know how to teach things and we're going to misunderstand each other and and it's through the mistakes and the, the imperfections Right. That people really grow and learn. And this is true in parent-child relationships and really in all of our relationships. I have to say, I have never heard the idea that white supremacist culture and perfectionism are go hand in hand like that. And I have to give myself a little bit of time to think about that. So um, of course, yeah. I'm curious about that. <laughs> well, and what that's saying is it's, we oftentimes think about white supremacist as this very explicit sort of form of oppression or power but yeah. but what it's saying is that you know it's white eurocentric dominant culture is that right that's what's sort of okay. making the, yeah. the the composition of what everything is and and through yeah. that some of the tenants are uh perfectionism um okay. being right or wrong versus understanding it's you yeah know, dialogue. So those are yes i i get that exactly so those are kind of traditionally uh yeah, in that more holistic view of white supremacy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 And 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 how other cultures, as as you've mentioned, they've their the way that they have the parent child connection is different. It's not so much about control, but it's about mm -hmm. guiding and, and mm -hmm. you know, there's there's a myriad of different ways of how communities raise their young. Right. But I think that when we can sit back and realize you know, the more that we can, we can bring in from others, the better that, like, I think that multiculturalism is so, is so much of the answer in moving forward as a society. Yes, yes I agree. 
Yes. Being, because I think, you know, I, we've had a lot of, um, uh, emphasis on what, what I like to think of as cultural humility, you know, mm-hmm. rather than cultural competence, because cultural humility is really about listening. And, and it's, it's kind of a universal concept that, you know, that even if you and I are both white, you know, your experience versus my experience, or I'm Jewish. And if I were to keep speak with another Jewish person, I wouldn't automatically know what their experience of being Jewish was like mine. Um, and, you know, so each individual person has their own, uh, experience, whatever culture they're in. And so, uh, really understand if I, if I interact with somebody, um, who's black or somebody who's, we have a a large, uh, immigrant Latino population where I work, I want to hear what is their story? Who are you? And, and rather than some sort of some sort of probably unattainable competence at, at you as a more of a, you know, of a group. So, um, so I think there's a lot of uh, overlap between these concepts of, of, uh, cultural humility and listening. Well, I, I, I mean, I, that's, that's really, that's one of my, um, theses of my work is that Mm. the more that we can kind of listen the further that we'll get ahead. Of course, we can't have two people that are just listening because then nothing's really being said, right? <laughs> but 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 in turn taking and which yeah. is why the power of discord, I was like, whoa, this is, you know, this is so important. Is that another thing about um the the, the sort of idea of the Eurocentric dominant culture or white supremacist culture is that um, you know, we we, we got to avoid conflict. Instead, we kind of go to be passive aggressive. But, but through conflict, we can actually, if we have the humility to be wrong mm-hmm. and just kind of like, oh man, like I messed that up. Like, let's be mm-hmm. respectful here. Let's, let's move forward. Like you mentioned previously, let's move through this rather than avoid it. Mm-hmm. That's where the understanding comes in. And, exactly. and that's the reconciliation, right? Which is so much of what we need right now. And I've heard it said that the basis of so much conflict, one of the primary reasons for conflict, one of, is misunderstanding. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say uh, certainty. We are plagued by the sense of certainty. Yes. Um, and that's another big component of listening. Like, I don't really know. I don't get it. Can you explain it to me? I mean, I, I, I can't, unless I don't quite get your experience and, and I say it wrong and, and maybe I get you upset and then I ask you why, what did I do? And you explain to me, you know, that's how we understand each other rather than, oh, I, oh, I know like um, uh, how you feel or something like that, which is a more kind of distancing, off-putting kind of expression. Right. Well, yes. And, and this idea of we are more similar than we are dissimilar but always, like you say, being using that in my experiences, I have similar experiences, but they're not the same, you know, right. and, and then, and then moving from there, um, you mentioned certainty and, uh, and, and we've talked about, you know, the emphasis on getting it right. Where do you think that that comes from? And, and I'll, I'll tell you my own answer. I think it comes from, uh, parenting, our form yes. of parenting. 
Yes, yes, it, it comes from sort of a also Eurocentric kind of not not only this is not across the board for sure, but but authoritarian models of parenting um, tend to uh, lead to uh, difficulty with sort of uh, flexibility and and openness to other people's points of view. So I think some of the polarization and certainty we see is is related to authoritarian parenting, which in turn is related to our lack of support of parents, because um, it's hard to be a flexible, open, curious parent when you're uh, alone and exhausted and uh having to turn to substances to get through your day or, you know, or, or you yourself are not taken care of. So authoritarian kind of parenting may become the default kind of parenting, or even this would sort of lead us back to Elizabeth Young Brule, even more sort of what we people would, you know, uh, might bleed into more neglectful or abusive kind of parenting by parents who themselves are not supported and held. And I think, you know, some of the, the roots of our, you know, the discontent in our world today begin with that. Right. Well, and, and you're talking about substances and um, I always get this name wrong, or I think I do. I'm not confident in this name, but Gabor Matei yes. talked about trauma, multi-generational trauma and how that feeds into addiction because really addiction yeah. is just, a, it's, it's self-medication but right. we have such a another thing about our culture, another idiosyncrasy of Eurocentric culture is the usage of shame. Yes, and yeah. and because we feel shameful, we yeah. self medicate with the substances. Yeah. So how do we how do we get away from that? How like how do we break the cycle mm -hmm. um, as parents? Um, well, I, I'm just thinking in my mind of a story because I just very recently heard. I find it easier to answer these questions if I talk about actual story. And I, you know, I, I disguise that all the stories I use in my work are, you know, tweaked so that not to um, violate confidentiality. But so a, a, a child who was uh, in the foster care system growing up, so had a lot of early trauma, and then had became pregnant as a teen and now has her own child who's uh, she's now struggling with substance use and her child is in the foster is not in the foster care system, but is in the care of her mother. So, um, so here we have this kind of punitive child protection system. You're a bad mom. Mm. You didn't do this. Uh, you have to follow all these instructions. We're going to give you this list of things to do, but saying, you know, what is your relationship with your mother? And can we find a way for your you and your mother to reconnect with each other so that you can get your mother back and then you can be a mother to your child? So if we had a, a system of, of uh, child protective services and mental health services that saw the value of supporting relationships rather than shaming people and punishing people, then we might be able to in fact, when I was on this meeting, I said, do you think there's any possible space for repair now? Because here you have the grandmother 
the mother and the child who's now like four. <laughs> um, and so much hurt and so much trauma. And, and if we could work with the three, the four-year-old and the mother and the grandmother in a way that really listened to them and, and acknowledged their generations of trauma, then, then there would be opportunity for repair, but that's really the only way not to, yeah. to send people to, you know, to, to punish people and to, you know, have that kind of, uh, shaming, um, institutional shaming that child protection often, even though there's some very good, well-meaning, well-intentioned people within the system as a whole, it, it doesn't have a flavor of listening. It has a flavor more of, of punishment and shaming. Well, I work in British Columbia in Canada and oh. uh, the ministry of child and family development. It's, it's, it is only in very extreme circumstances that they they remove children from their families. The goal is to empower families. At least that's what they always tell me on paper. Oh, okay. Uh, so I for, I didn't realize we weren't in the same country when we. Oh, okay. So I'm talking. I, but there about, are parallels. Oh no, no. But, there, but there's there's parallels, right? I mean, but we we have our sure have our set of problems compared to Canada. <laughs> but but Canada is. I mean, no perfect. Uh, of course, no perfect yes. system exists, but how you get closer is through collaboration. Yeah. Um, because, yeah. because children, I mean, do children really know boundaries and borders and nationalities and things <laughs> like that? I mean, these are all kind of constructs, right? Mm -hmm. You're a Canadian, you're an American. I mean, kids are just kids, right? Yeah. What, what, whatever that expression means, which, which yeah. is lovely, right? So what, what do children need? from parents? It's a loaded question. Mm -hmm. And well, I always, I, I, I have to say, I would start by saying, well, what do parents need? Because as soon as you start saying, well, what do children need from That's the childism. Parents, if I were a parent, I'd be like, well, I would become immediately, I, I am a parent, but my parent, my kids are in their twenties. Um, I would feel uh, anxious. I would feel like the person who was speaking was going to blame me for something. Mm -hmm. So, so I think what children need is for their parents to be held by their culture. Number one, <laughs> then once that's done, um, uh, then they need, uh, they need a, what I, well, this is my first book, keeping your child in mind. They need kind of, uh, they need, their caregivers to be curious about the meaning of their behavior rather than necessarily simply controlling their behavior. They need uh, empathy. They need not necessarily like if you, you know, want the green sippy cup and you, you can't have it and you have a meltdown that that's the end of the world, but that they, there's, there's empathy for the child's experience, even if it's different from the parents, but they also really need, boundaries yes. and limits. And I think this is a common misconception that listening to children means just letting them run the show. Yeah, but children, want. Yeah. the way they de develop a, s a sense of their own self um, and their own ability to manage their big emotions, their ability to pay attention, their ability to uh, manage their impulses, all those things that are important for socialization and learning, um, a lot of that is in 
boundaries and limits. So, so those are really, I would say, the three core things that children need. Curiosity, empathy, and limits. <laughs> I'm right. I'm writing that down. That's a great, uh, great answer. Yes. Well, the other sort of um, observation that I'm seeing is that so many, so many parents, I mean, they're just working all the time and they don't have time to be in their kids' lives. So they, they spoil them. Like they give them whatever they want, mm -hmm. but what they want isn't what they need. And what they need is you're saying is, is these attachments or what I'm hearing you're saying is these, these powerful attachments where they know, like, mm -hmm. I understand that you're upset, mm -hmm. but these are your choices. Right. 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 So what would you say children are struggling with most in the 21st century? Um, just, just based on, you know, the power of, of discord and, and, why we need conflict. So why do we need to, to really look at, this is a two-part question. Mm -hmm. Why do we need to understand that our kids are experiencing conflicts? And what is it that you're seeing uh, is a lot of the conflicts that they're facing? Um, well, I think if we, you know, kids are struggling with what I just described. Uh, managing themselves. So you, you might see the ability to have big feelings and not lose control, the ability to um, uh, be socially flexible, the, be, the ability to um, be flexible, not, not only socially, but in your thinking, like all of those things that we consider mental health those all emerge through the moment-to-moment -moment interactions with a child with their primary caregivers early in life. So that's where this thing we call self-regulation um, comes from. It comes from co-regulation in these messy moment-to-moment -moment interactions with not only with the mother or, or only with the father, but many different people in a child's life. And those form the child's core ability to manage themselves in the world. Um, and if they don't, if that beginning was not strong or there wasn't a space for that typical mismatch and repair for a variety of reasons. I mean, one is simply, uh, as I said, a parent who's overwhelmed with many young children and exhausted. Um, the other is, uh, you know, a loss or a trauma, like, like you alluded to, um, uh, um, there are sometimes there are factors in the child, uh, that make the process difficult. Like a child who has, uh, neurologic vulnerabilities, sensory processing sensitivities. Um, so if for a whole range of reason, that sort of natural intuitive mismatch and repair doesn't happen early in life, then children will struggle with, self-regulation. They'll struggle with their attention. They'll struggle with managing big emotions. They may struggle being close to other people. Um, so I think we are seeing a lot of that. And it certainly is, it's uh, escalated and, and exponentially grown because of the effects of the pandemic when people were deprived of that rich environment of, of social give and take. Um, and so we need that. So that, but, but I think the good news is, so that's where children are struggling. 
um, when those when the developmental roots were not strong. But the good news is that what we learn from child development is that these things can change, you know, over your entire lifespan. But they don't change just by, you know, six weeks of CBT. They change by immersing yourself in a whole network of relationships where there is room for that mismatch and repair. So whether it's with teachers, whether it's with Taekwondo instructors, whether it's through doing photography or, or having a puppy or, you know, all the different ways we can be in the world in relationships that allow us to, if we haven't had a solid sense of self from the beginning to grow that kind of sense of self. Uh, I mean, it, it, even into your eighties and nineties, you can and change in that way. And, and, and that's that neuroplasticity is that right. who, we, who we are is we don't have to always be that way. And I tell kids right. all the time when I work with them, I'm like, yes, you know, my, my grandfather would tell me, uh, you make a mistake once, that's what it is. It's a mistake. It happens again. It's a habit. But the good news is, is that habits stop being habits the moment you choose that other thing. So if, say you always get into a fit of rage and you punch holes in walls, um, which is something that I struggled with as a young person. Uh, that moment when you, you become so enraged, but then you take a deep breath and then you, you calm yourself down. Your brain is rewiring and creating a new neural pathway that, Oh, I have a choice here. I don't have to just go that way. Exactly. And that, and I'm curious how, how, how you did that, because typically it's something that happens over, you know, hundreds of thousands of those moments where you take a breath. It's not like just once you learn that, oh yeah, okay, now I'm never going to punch another hole in the wall. But over time, Mm -hmm. your body, it's not only your neuron, I mean, it's, it's, it's not only your brain, I should say, it's your whole body learns a different way of being in the world uh, over time. Um, which it sounds like that's what you you did. Um, and that's when when people are struggling, you know, whether they're, you know, nine months old or six years old or 25 years old or even, you know, 80 years old. That That's what I, I think about, like immersion in interactions that can help you to to manage your brain and your body in a, in a healthy way. I. Uh... And just in the work that I do, I try to avoid shoulds. Like, this is what you should do. Mm-hmm. But but I, I do bring up, you know, these are things that you should avoid, right? Or, or these are shouldn'ts, perhaps. And okay. one of them is, is, for example, yelling at your child. I mm-hmm. really don't think that that's an effective strategy. Like, unless it's like it's a life or death situation, right. like your child's right. about to run under the street. Hey, what are you doing? Right. And they're like, whoa. But like, what are you doing? Like, why do you keep making these mistakes? I just think that that crushes the confidence of children. Now, my bias here is that that may or may not have been what I experienced as a young person. Um, So that's where I I get that from. But Mm -hmm. I'm curious if there's if you believe in shouldn'ts or shoulds. uh, And if so, what are they? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right that yelling um, punitive kind of parenting is never effective. Um, and, uh, the, the only caveat I would say is that we all yell at our kids at some point, you know, it's just that 
you say, wow, <laughs> this is where you need to, like, I need to take care of myself because this isn't good for my kid or me. So then maybe you do lose your cool and you yell at your child. And then you say, you know, mm-hmm. I had a really tough day or I was upset with daddy or whatever. Uh, and I'm sorry that I yelled at you. Um, and, you know, and that can become a moment of growth. But but when you as a parent find yourself yelling at your child all the time, things are not going well and you need some support in some way to get yourself be able to be better regulated. Um, right. What, what sort of, because a, a lot of the books that I read, they can be quite abstract, which, which is wonderful. And it's like, oh, okay, I get it. But then when the, when the rubber hits the pavement or whatever, it's like, oh man, I don't have any skills. Right. I just, I know these things as like kids need attachments and things like that. But what are some, some good practical strategies for mm-hmm. parents to be more perhaps mindful or to develop mindfulness? Well, one of the big influences on my work is uh, Bruce Perry, and he teaches in the program where I'm on the faculty, and you know he's just written this book with uh, Oprah Winfrey. So he has this upside-down triangle where um, uh, it's regulate, relate, reason. So it, to recognize that when you're in a tough moment, try what we often do if our child is upset or we're upset as we try to explain it well you know like i have i work with a child who has a lot of trouble um with personal space like she can't stand someone near her so she pushes them and then the teacher says you know you you can't do that or and she so and then the teacher's talking at her and the teacher is standing close to her and so she's getting more and more agitated. And so she pushes the teacher and then the teacher gets agitated. And the teacher then keeps trying to explain to her what she needs to do or ask her, why are you doing that? Can you tell? And the kid has no idea. The kid is like in that regulate, like not, not even in the relate part. So you've got to start with the regulate both for the adult and the child, which means breathing. The very first thing you need to do is to breathe. And, you know, that's where these things like square breathing or or different kinds of breathing techniques can be very useful Um, or whatever it is, like some people walking, like even just going for a 10 minute walk. I sometimes have kids go, you know, parents go with their kid, just walk up and down the block because the, the, the movement of your body will will begin to regulate your physiology. Right. So then once you're regulated, then you need, then you can be in relation to another person. And, and only after that, do you get to reason? And I think we go right to reason. Yes. And then everybody just falls apart. So that would, that would be, it's not really exactly a tip because it's not like you should do X, Y, Z, but it's just more of a, a frame to think of that regulate, relate reason, um, motto. And and the, the other thing is, the work that I do, I work with um, some very complex cases. And um, one thing I always tell kids is that I say, hey, you, you know, you made a bad choice. You made a poor, actually, I say you made a poor choice, but you're not a bad person. And right. it's almost like I'm telling a kid what, I, I, in my strategies, I try to put myself in their shoes because I know I had some, some, you know, my own adverse experiences in life. Yes. And I say, you know, hey, you made a bad choice, but you're not a bad person. 
And I try to give them unconditional self-regard, right? Yes. Like, yes. No matter what happens, I always will like you. Yes. And to me, that's what I think kids need to hear is that parents, yes, they love their kids, but that it's good to also be interested in them. Yes. And I think that that's a good strategy is because kids oftentimes, and I think this is sort of the premise of the book, Hold On to Your Kids by um, Gabor Matei and Gordon Neufeld, is uh, rather than try to resist what your kids are into, take interest in it. So if they like heavy metal, instead mm-hmm. of being like, turn that awful music down, just be like, mm-hmm. hey, that's really cool. And it, it transforms it from being extrinsic pursuits of identity like I'm doing this because, you know, I'm, I'm getting something out of it to intrinsic um, pursuits of identity, right? Like I'm doing this because I'm understanding myself. And I think that as parents, if we can take interest in our children, that it stops their behaviors from it being defiance, right? Because it's like, hey, you know, that's really cool that you want to see this movie or let's unpack that versus making it like, don't see that film. It's almost like, I love the movie Lion King. Uh, Mufasa, one of the greatest uh, father figures in in all films, but he made a grave error when he said to his son, don't go to that shadowy place over there. Well, what does Simba want to do? He wants to go immediately to that shadowy place, the elephant graveyard, Mm -hmm. right? What if he just told him, you know, this is what it is. And and, and I think that sometimes... we while we go to straight to reason, we also sometimes miss it too. We don't tell kids why. Why can't I do that? Because I said so. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So underestimating their ability to to understand. I mean, this you know we're talking about for older children. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, being respectful, I think, mm-hmm. uh, is part of what you're saying. And and the other thing is with mental health, things like anxiety, depression that children are experiencing, is that on the rise or are we just seeing it more clearly now? I think it's definitely uh, on the rise. I would say uh, um, with anxiety, anxiety is an interesting word because anxiety is an experience and it's also a diagnosed mental illness. Right. Um, well, it's also true of depression. Like I think people are getting overwhelmed by feelings that they then can't manage, um, which is rather than saying at point A, you're healthy and at point B, you have an illness, which is kind of not the way mental health works. Although things like the DSM where you you go through a diagnostic criteria and at the time, this time you have this, that's not really how our mental health works. Um, so at some point your ability to be deal with sad feelings or your ability to, to be deal with anxiety becomes, you, um, you become unable to manage it. Uh, and, uh, that is usually rooted in, in relationships. Um, so, uh, I think we've, that circles back to the other thing you were asking me about what are kids struggling with now? We're struggling with having a paucity of those kind of rich relationships that help us to 
be ourselves and to have big feelings without falling apart. And so the result of that is then what we call depression and anxiety. <laughs> um, so it's just a slight reframing of it because my worry is that in the medical model of disease, if we just say, oh, all these kids have depression and anxiety, and then we just give them you know, CBT or medication, we're not really getting at what is depression and anxiety and, and how it really to address depression and anxiety, you need to really be immersed in relationships in a developmental way over time. Uh, so uh, mental health tends to not like uh, have a particularly developmental or relational frame, which I think can be a problem. So a lot of the, the writing that I do is really putting, placing mental health questions, issues. Emo I, I like to use the term emotional struggles, emotional suffering. Like we all have emotional suffering. That's kind of the human condition. Um, and that understanding and addressing emotional suffering needs to happen in a developmental and relational context. And that does not in any way mean to stigmatize it. This is just something that, that people have and, and that need um, support and, and healing. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a great point that we, we will all experience emotional struggles. And perhaps sometimes what the problem is, is that when we experience this emotional struggle, it's not taken seriously. Like, you know, a dog dies and that's your first loss. And someone says, get over it. Like, whoa, talk about it shouldn't. Um, and, and then and then the person kind of buries that down. Yeah. I'm now so, for, yeah. No, I appreciate you bringing up because all of this, I think grief and, and uh, protecting time for grieving and uh, mourning is such an important part of listening. And so often I find that when people are struggling, as I take time to listen in my office, I uncover mm. uh, loss that was never addressed or, or mourned. Um, and so a lot of the process of healing is about grieving. Yeah. And perhaps that's something that most most people you know across the gamut of culture that why do we struggle with grief because it's hard right we right we love to distract ourselves i'll speak yeah. for myself i love to distract myself but then when you sit with yourself and and you experience those feelings healing is not easy right yeah. and and is there any way to make it easier or, or more successful. Is there any way to make healing easier? Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's time and lots of opportunity for moving through the grief. You know, um, it's not just like over in six months or a year, it's a lifelong process. And, and that, and, and, you know, also in my office, I, I found that the, tissues were like my most important instrument and not I had to have them on the table because I the worst thing is when someone starts to cry and you give them a box yes yes but somehow that they were there and so and and often when in, in a very natural way a person would 
cry, that there is this, it's very painful, but then you get through it and that's where you, you start to heal. So, so I think that whatever crying represents, which I don't really know exactly the physiology, but that process of really being in the grief um, is so important for healing and to be in a way that you feel safe and that you are not alone. Yeah. I mean, when, when people cry around me, it's just like, that again is such a privilege of this person obviously trusts Mm -hmm. me and they feel safe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a sacred moment. It is. When you're with somebody and, and they're, Uh, you know, I, I had a student tell me that um, he he was having, excuse me, they were having these behavioral problems, problems, and he told me that, you know, his brother died, uh, or sibling died, before he ever met them, mm. and he had never told anybody about this. Oh my gosh, oh, that gives me chills. Yeah, right, right. And imagine he'd never told that. any. He'd never met him, and he told me that. Oh, my parents, they say, I, I remind me so much of this oh. person. And, oh. and it's like, what? and here, here to me, this is like a routine traffic stop, right? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, again, there's, there's that, that privilege of, and I do think that going back to childism is that one way that perhaps I, maybe I am effective at this is because I'm just a big kid. Right. And and yeah. I think that that kids identify with that. I, we talk about video games, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't say, "Oh, that's so bad for your eyes." I say, "Tell me more." And yeah. kids, kids really do love it when they share what they're interested about because so yeah. often I think kids experience the talking down to thing, and and that's yeah. all for good reason, of course. But when it's like, "Tell me more about you," and you're having that back and forth, that that active listening, that level playing field, you see something, not to sound corny, but it's, it's magical. It really it is. is. Yes. No, I agree with you. It is magical. Yeah. So now with another thing that I work a lot with and, and I experience a lot with is, is the rise of suicidality amongst children. And it seems like it's getting younger and younger. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and again, it's like if I say, "Oh, just wait till you're older." There's so much to look out for. Uh, I don't think that that's no. of any use. No. So, again, going back to that level to level, how can you help a student, a young person, excuse me, who's experiencing suicide suicidiology, suicidiality? Excuse me. Okay, so I'm going to just take note of the fact that we don't have a lot of time, and that's a mm-hmm. very big question. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to offer a, a, a very kind of global general answer. You know, what I was talking about, about this kind of moving through mismatch and repair where things go wrong and then they're okay. When you have that over and over again, you get kind of a core sense of hope. But when, um, for whatever reason, you've missed out on that that kind of opportunity to see that you can be in a bad spot and uh, get to the other side. Um, that leads to hopelessness, and and I, I think suicide suicidality is sort of the ultimate form of hopelessness. It's a, it's a kind of forever is now. Like you can only see where you are right now, 
And so whatever it is, is an immersion in, and I've talked about how like having one uh, modality of treatment is, is usually insufficient. You know, when a person has gotten to that state of hopelessness, a kind of holding in many different opportunities. So whether it's in, enrolling in a, in a, I've mentioned this a number of times, martial arts, uh, psychotherapy, art, whatever a child excels in, in their body, um, all of those things need to happen together to begin to give a child a sense that even though I feel bad now, I will not always feel bad. Cause that's when kids are at real risk is when they cannot see beyond the immediacy of now. Yeah. I, I try to bring in almost um, like Buddhism has really helped yeah. me in my yeah. life. And this it idea is, that there is a lot of that. Yeah all things shall pass good, bad. Otherwise, even though we, we attribute these values to them, but I, I think that that's, that's, that is powerful. And this eclecticism, it's not just one way of doing things. There's, there's many ways. So last question, cause I, I, I know that there's, there's time running out, but um, why did you decide to get into this noble field? You can hear my daughter in the background. So I'm gonna mute <laughs> how old is she? 22 months. Or, Ooh, yeah, 22 months. Oh my goodness. So, um, well, I, uh, I, my mother is a child psychologist and she saw kids in our home. Uh, and I originally wanted to be a child psychologist, but I did, um, uh, an elective, uh, when I was in high school, actually with a child psychoanalyst and I became absolutely intrigued by child development. So, uh, just like we said, I mean, it's just such a magically wonderful, amazing thing. So I thought, well, I'll be a pediatrician because I'll be immersed in child development. And so I got very good training in pediatrics and I was working in a very busy practice, um, going to deliveries in the middle of the night, really very much immersed in families' lives, um, the way I wanted to be. But as a pediatrician in my training, I had not really learned what I needed to know. Um, and so I had to go elsewhere. And so I educated myself for first becoming a scholar with the Berkshire psychoanalytic Institute, discovering people like Winnicott, um, who I mentioned earlier. And then I, uh, did a fellowship and then was invited to join the faculty of the university of Massachusetts, Boston infant parent mental health program, where that's where, uh, you know, knowledge tends to be siloed. And I was there opened up to a whole world of research and knowledge that pediatricians are generally not exposed to. And that, um, I, that really enriched my world, but actually I will, I left one piece of it out, which is probably the main motivation why I switched into this way of working is that I saw so many kids exponential rise in kids being diagnosed with ADHD younger and younger and younger, and then bipolar disorder, 15 month olds. And and then I would listen to their stories and I would hear stories of, you know, things that really got derailed very early on in life. And, and so um, I began to listen while I was learning new ways of understanding development. I began to listen to families in different ways and that just blew my mind. And that was led to my first book. and, And I've learned more and more, uh, 
which has been such a privilege to learn from the families I work with and from world leaders of how to really think about how best to promote the healthy development of children and families. I, and, and I mean, nail on the head right there. We, 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 sometimes we see things as, you know, just that, but there's a whole, there's a system beneath it, above it and so forth. And that's why family systems is so important. I mean, yeah. as a counselor, uh, I work a lot with the, the families and yeah. I think that that's a nuanced approach sometimes because if you do want to see change, uh, you know, when you integrate everybody, then they see they yeah. see that change happening. Well, Claudia, I'm going to say one more thing, which is yeah. talking to you, which is that I, oh, when there are two parents involved with a child, I always work with both parents because yes. I think you, you just don't, the co-parenting piece of child development is so central. And, and that's also something we often miss in our society. So I appreciate having the opportunity to talk to you. as well, a We'll have to have you on again, Claudia. Thank you so much for your time. Thank it's you for having me. Thank you. Once again, that was Dr. Claudia Gold sharing with us childism, attachment theory, and uh, and just talking about what kids need in a very uncertain period in history. That said, I think life has always been uncertain, no matter how old you are. We've talked quite a bit about ageism, and I think childism is no different. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, I've heard people say things like, I can't stand children, which if you feel that way, ask yourself why. What is it about children? Could it be uh, the, the, the parenting that they receive? What, what is it? What is it in your experiences that makes you think, you know, I don't like kids or something like that because... I've made my living out of working with children. And, and let me tell you, there is no other career, no other nine to five job I'd rather be doing than working with young people. It encourages me and it makes me hopeful. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, check back for, for more episodes. Glad to be back at it. Have a wonderful day. Thank you again for listening. I'm Robert Grant, and I'm probably wrong about everything.